This is Fam Electric Ghost, and we're live on the air with Barry LaBeouf. How are you doing tonight? I am doing great. How are you? I'm doing fine. Uh, welcome to the Fam Electric Ghost podcast. We want to tell people that we are a featured podcast on the Newsly Network. You can see that little icon says listen on Newsly. And if you use that coupon code, a ghost, you can check that out for one month. We will be on Newsly with this episode later tonight. And so you can check that out. We do have your URL, www.barrylabove.com, and that will be fully clickable. You don't have to remember that, but it will be up there in the show. And we're going to talk today about the, the, the primary subject, but we'll probably talk about a lot of other things. Discovering your brand's uniqueness to win hearts and minds and market share is kind of like an overall subject, but we're going to tell your story as well. So once we start with that, the first thing I usually ask a guest is, why do you do what you do? And what motivates you? Well, I was prepared for that because I, I listen to you and I love your podcast. So I, I've been ready for that. <laughs> you know, I can sum it all up with one word, inspire. I love to inspire. And that means inspire others with identifying what their talents are. Sometimes it's working with other people to create something. In my old, old days, I created songs. Today, I'm creating concepts as an example. I love to inspire. I love to identify the magic in people, in companies, and then celebrate it. Well, that's a cool, cool process. It seems, it seems like it's still rather creative and being a creative myself. Uh, you know, I'm a musician. It all, you can see all my uh, all my synths behind me, but I'm in my bedroom producer studio. But the idea of uh, creative people, you know, finding other ways to be creative, and I, you know, is kind of the whole point of this podcast. I've been able to talk to a lot of entrepreneurs and a lot of people who are, you know, not just you know. We started talking to this musicians, but then we opened up that like the creative spark is in everybody, whether you're a therapist, life coach, shaman whatever. And like, I, I find that common thread and that's what I try to do with the show. So seeing that you're, you're actually trying to lift other people or, or help other people, uh, you know, find their niche. Right. Right. And I started out as a musician and my songs, I want to let you know, sold well under 1 million copies, but I had a band. <laughs> we uh, backed up John Mellencamp we had oh. a song on American Bandstand. I had songs published. I led bands for a couple decades. And what mm. I did was I not only was involved with other people doing lots of creative stuff, just like you do. You, I've listened to your music. I have my band's music, you know, out there as well. But the other thing is, is that it, for better or for worse, it's the way I lead my company. I lead my company like it's a rock band. <laughs> That's probably a good idea. You know, I think it's it to be, if you think about the creative spark that you like, you ask like, why not? Like a lot of musicians, I've always like watching all these films that like Frank Zappa talking about like, why not kind of push it? And why not? Like, in, you know, he would go and play a solo different every day because he felt like it. he's like, why should I just you know, restrict myself. So I've always been into like expansive expansion or expansive ideas. And I think like a lot of times we put ourselves 
in narrow lanes. And if you really start thinking, if you're a creative person, like if you're a musician, like why you write your own song, you're kind of already in that mode. Like, why shouldn't I do that? Maybe you don't have that problem where you might, well, maybe you have an issue, but they, you know, a lot of people don't feel they have a right to, to put out their own stuff. They, they, they feel like they have to copy or they're not good enough. You know, it's that, it's that kind of not good enough uh, problem. Well, another thing I think your listeners would relate to as well. I know you would as a musician, a lot of times in a business setting, a family setting, a band setting, there are, let's say you have five people in your band. Well, two of them write songs and you know, the other three, you're not allowed to write. You're not, you're not really creative, <laughs> whatever. The really great bands, the really great moments in music history or any type of creative history, but in bands, many times came from people you did not expect. And as an example, if you like the band Queen, everybody thinks Freddie Mercury wrote every song. He didn't. In fact, Another One Bites the Dust, which I believe, other than Bohemian Rhapsody, was their number one song, wasn't even written by the two other guys who wrote 80% of the rest of the music. It was written by the bass player. And you got to... I knew that I remember looking at their album cover and go, my gosh, the bass player wrote this. Well, they allowed that in their creativity. They, they celebrated it. So I believe in how we run our lives and how we run our businesses. Uh, who says, if I'll talk business here, who says your accounting person isn't creative? Who says your uh, client services person isn't creative? Anybody can be creative. A great idea can come from anyone. And I also believe, you know, this as a musician, if you don't allow that, you are robbing yourself of greatness because your band, your team is is only going to perform up to a certain level because they're restricted. I, I believe anybody can create. Yeah, I think the walls that we put up are are kind of like I've always been uh very interested like you said in 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 knowing if there's a uh organization or a group or even a collective of artists that are more willing to entertain kind of that bleeding edge and not just trying to clone oh well this is what gets in the gallery or this is what gets on the air or this is the widget that we need to produce because all these other people produce that widget and the person, you know, you get the Steve Jobs that says, why can't you have a more creative computer? Like, why can't you have something that doesn't look like a business machine? That looks like more like an art designer designed it, right? And so, like, if you come out of the left field, like, well, yeah, well, who's going to want that? Like, well, if you don't put it out there, you won't know. Well, a lot of times, creative people or people who are in creative positions, they play it safe. And it get very formulaic. I don't know if you know this story because you're a lot younger than me, but I remember this story and it inspired me as a songwriter. My favorite band, the Beatles, who I believe almost everybody in your audience would know. Here's <laughs> yeah. what made them different. And I remember hearing this from a person who knew them, but also then later reading this. And I think your audience should love this. What used to be is you would be in a band way back in the 60s. 
you'd have one or two hits. They'd throw you out onto the road. You're out playing every night, six, seven months in a row. They then say, okay, okay, uh, we're going to put you in the studio, get in there. You got two days. You got to record another album. Now, typically what happened was the, the guys get into the studio and they go, uh, you remember that hit song we just wrote? Yeah. Okay. Let's write another one just like that. And they go, okay. And then remember that country song we did uh, and it kind of had that thing. Okay. Let's write another one like that. And they would then basically copy themselves, send that junk out the door and get back into the, uh, touring. What the Beatles did was different. What happened was, yes, they put an album together in a day. They go out for six months. They were then forced back into the studio. And what John Lennon did was he said, hey, everybody, before we begin writing, let's listen to the album we just did. And once we're done with listening to it, you know, 40 minutes, then let's figure out where do we go next? Where do we mm -hmm. take next? instead of how do we regurgitate this thing and, you know, shove it out the door. Yeah. I mean, I heard that story and then I saw a documentary with George Martin and he was talking about how they were listening to Peter Sellers records and how those records use effects and backward tape loops and overdubs in the studio, like a, like a, an instrument. And, and he kind of mentioned George Martin was talking about like, well, you know, I could record a Beatles like they're in Hamburg right playing on tour or we could actually use the studio like a painter layers like monet like so they came up with the idea and the beatles had been listening to peter sells record so that also was an, into the the concept of being willing to do something that you can't naturally replicate alive if you start looking at sergeant peppers and abbey road there's stuff on there you can't do live as a four-piece band because there's all these layers there's all these effects and things that you can't do now nowadays you can because we got capabilities but at that time if you start throwing all that stuff on you're not going to actually sound like that the record's going to sound different than the live show well also what was interesting Which they're great they're cool. great <laughs> yeah it's really great their creativity was so amazing also because they dealt with limitations so what you just mentioned is right. So on Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, that album had orchestra and had uh, so many different effects, but it was recorded on a four track. It was four different tracks. That's it. So they yeah, had not, to record the band, bounce it down to one or two tracks. Literally on one track, you could have the background singing, you could have the guitar solo, you could have a tambourine, and you could have a kid crying in the background. I mean, you didn't know what was bounce. going on. Yeah, there. you could bounce those. Yeah, that was the yeah. old tech. You know, I used to use tape when I first started before yep. digital. I was very much into a four uh, task and four tracker that you could bounce. Yep. Yeah, and me I would too. use I'd sequencers have, yeah. that had 16 yeah. tracks coming off a of Roland D50, and it right. bring that down you know, MIDI 16 tracks off a, off a Roland and put down to one task game track and then bounce another layer. Yeah. And, you know, you could layer even on the four track, if you were using any of these MIDI instruments that had multiple channels, you could have a lot of stuff. And that was back when like D fifties. Um, right. but, uh, but yeah, I mean, the idea of, um, if anybody knows what I were talking about, but uh, I'm a, I'm a synthesis, so I go a little crazy, but, um, Me too. the idea that you can use, it's a palette. It's like you can layer like a painter. And I've always been in this idea of sound paintings 
and in mm-hmm. sound pain is kind of your vote that painter does layers well musicians you can do layers too and you we, that's what we've been talking about the last five minutes but the idea that you're not restricted that you know and it, or you know part of the thing is you know restrictions are good i use moog synthesizers they only monophonic they're not they're analog they're not digital they can't do samples it's restricted that restriction, that limitation actually can breed a lot of creativity because there's only so many things it can do, but there's a lot it can do, but it can't do what a digital synth does. So sometimes your restriction can breed innovation. Right, but you have to allow that because otherwise it's a problem and a hassle. And what you just described is a goal we all have or should have, which is how do we do something great and not allow any of these so-called challenges or restrictions to stop us. And in some cases, allow them to be a springboard to an even better idea. Yeah, because if you're in business and you've got this like uh, really bleeding edge idea, but the problem is no one's ever seen it. There are no sales numbers. There are no metrics. Nobody knows if it's going to work. So then there's like faith and then determination and hard work to kind of like, how are you going to convince anybody to support something that you, you can't show any evidence that it would be a hit or it would work? And, and that's like sometimes if you're that entrepreneur, you're like, well, you got to have that kind of belief in yourself that you do have a service or a product or a widget or whatever you're doing that's like you believe in it. And so how do you build that in people or help people you know, sustain that. Yeah, you're right. Well, one thing Steve Jobs did that was bizarre and brilliant, because you just mentioned him a few minutes ago, is he did not look at research in order to determine what he was going to create next. Because his concept was when his people said, hey, we're going to do some research with consumers and see what they want with a phone. He said, well, forget that. I'm sure he used different languages, but language, but <laughs> forget that. They don't know what's possible. Let's show them what's possible. And that's what an entrepreneur should do, which is, hey, I know you're used to blah, blah, blah. Okay, let me show you what's possible. Yeah, because that's that's the imagination. And that's the kind of thing, like, like you know, if it gets back to a music example, you think about Miles Davis mm. and all the different types of jazz. Right. He was like in, you know, he's in the canon of bebop and a canon of bebop then goes to fusion. And, it, you know, he, he got the kind of moment that Bob Dylan had when he went electric, you know, people were like, what is that? You know, like what happened to Dylan? They were like, he went electric and they were like booing, calling him yeah. Judas. And people were kind of doing the same thing to miles initially. He's like, what is that? That's not, that's not be- that jazz is bebop. And what are you doing? And so like when you get out on that bleeding edge, you might lose some friends. Yeah. You might lose some fans because but it's like the law of attraction. You're gonna whoever you know you lose, you might gain a lot of other people. You don't know who you're gonna gain until you let it, you know, out the door. You gain the respect. Um, I, I'll look at it like this, and, and people may think we're just riffing on music, but this is about business as much as music. If you look at it. Uh, and you, you've talked about a few really good recording artists that are amazing. Uh, if you look at Bruce Springsteen, if he goes on tour, he's selling out every arena. Yeah, he, he can't keep up the pace. Okay. If you look at Neil Young, 
who even in his heyday didn't sing that well, but he was all about character and integrity and passion. And and that's why he was so irritating to be in a band with, with the other guys. Cause he would just say, you know what? I know we're selling millions of records. I don't like what we're doing. So I quit. They go, you can't quit. (laughs) We got, we got too much money coming in. He goes, Oh, watch me. I'll quit. But what's interesting is the people who sell out the bands who sell out, um, they're playing tiny little clubs. They're playing the casino with the third backup lead singer for them because the other guys have left. There's not that much integrity, but you Mm -hmm. look at those few people who have said, okay, I'm going to do it the way I think is right. I'm going to make some mistakes, but I'm going to follow my muse or my inspiration. And I'm going to do that. And that's why there are those very, very few and special performers or artists that we follow and we love because they stand up for what they believe in. And by the way, that doesn't mean you think they're always right. You just really admire, like I do, that they do that. You think, okay, this guy or woman has character. Yeah, it's the character to believe rather than, you know, because we're kind of in this copy culture. And another example, like if you're out there and you, you want to be an influencer, and then you say, well, cat videos get a million views. So I'm going to go put a cat video with the same 30-second song that everybody else does, and maybe you'll get a billion views. But what are you trying to say? Right? You might have just got into the same category of stuff that kind of throw away. But, yeah, you got the views. But is it substantial? Is Are you actually having an impact? Did you actually say what you wanted to say, or are you just cloning something everybody's saying? And so well, the idea, if, I think, is like what you're saying with Bruce is like he goes and says what he wants to say. Right. And then law of attraction, people come to him because they know he'll do that. Well, if he sold out, you know, after he did his Born in the USA album, which was the biggest thing, and he was a, a, a sex idol then to everybody, all the women are going, oh, my God. Okay. Jeans, what, he's in the blue jeans. <laughs> right. That blue jeans thing. Okay. His very next album was recorded on a cassette recorder pretty much by himself. I mean, he completely threw out. Yeah. He completely threw out the momentum that he had because his inspiration was, okay, I'm now going to do something very different without my band. And this is what I'm putting out. And you know, the record company had a coronary and he, and he said, you know, that's too bad, but that's what I'm doing. And that's why in the long run, he has his brand and his brand is incredibly powerful. Well, it's the word, it's the song. It's kind of like Dylan. If you go back to Dylan's, like it's the song, right? Mm-hmm. And it, the, it, like whatever services the song in the moment of like where that artist heads at, right? right? So when he wanted to go electric and he wanted to play with the band, that's where his head's at. He doesn't want to be Arlo Guthrie or Woody Guthrie anymore. Right. He wanted to do something different. So we went that direction because that's what he was feeling. And, you know, if if Bruce is feeling I want to do a lo-fi singer-songwriter kind of record that really has an emotional impact, and I just want, that's what, that's where my head's at. That's where I love the fact that you get these artists like Neil, like you said, you just leave Buffalo Springfield, or just leave uh, Crosby, Stone, Nash, and Young. He's like, yeah, I'm just like my boss is just going to turn the other way and we're not going to finish the tour (laughs) because like I'm not there. I'm not there. And he's like, to be honest and know when you're not there, 
instead of like phoning it in. Like if you know, would you really want to see him phone it in or you want, want him to really believe in it? Right. You know, the funny thing with Neil Young is uh, most people think after the Woodstock album, because Crosby, Stills and Nash became famous because in part the Woodstock album, they played at Woodstock. I didn't know this. Neil Young was on stage. He played with them, but they weren't called Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young because Young did not want to be videotaped that day. And he said, yeah, I don't want to be videotaped. Keep me away. And they say, yeah, but it'll just be Crosby, Stills and Nash. And I think he said some choice words like, good, I don't really care. He followed his inspiration. And I think that's what's important. Again, that's what entrepreneurs who are successful do. And by the way, they still make mistakes, but at least they're following yeah. what they believe in. Well, it's not that it's going to be perfect. You know, that's, I've always been a big believer of like with a happy accident. You know, in my day job, I'm a oh, software yeah. developer. Yeah. And I don't know how many times iterations when we design, like you don't see all the mistakes. And sometimes those mistakes actually lead to other projects. We might be working on something and we were supposed to do X, but we found Y. And then we actually, Y is better than X. So we'll actually put X on the shelf and go with Y. And, and because we have this ability within like IT that we're always jumping generations and moving really fast and, and technology is always shifting. So we're more willing to accept that kind of entrepreneurial, creative kind of artist kind of mindset then maybe some other businesses there are kind of stuck in models where, you know, we're, we're trying to create the future. So a lot of times we, we're in that mindset, but, but, you know, to get to that mindset, it's like, you, you, what do you have to do? You have to talk to a guru, talk to a life coach, you know, meditate, you know, where do you, how do you start to, to, to catch on that fire? You know, catch you know, I don't know. No, you're right. Um, I call that the perfect trap where people get stuck in trying to make sure everything is perfect and they cannot move. I have a chapter in my book called The Perfect Trap. And exactly what you said is one of the paragraphs, which is some of your favorite songs were actually where the artist misplaced his or her fingers on a fretboard and went, wow. That's really cool. And all of a sudden, that magic is brilliant. But it was a mistake. It was an accident, like you said. Yeah. And we have to realize that it's not about perfect. You've got to let that go. Because if you hold on to perfect, you're not going to have a lot of output. And by the time you finally shove something out the door, the world's changed so much. And I'm talking about songs and I am talking about product launches by the time you wait and wait for perfect to happen, which it never will, but you finally wait long enough and you ship that thing out the door, it's late. Everybody yeah, else is doing that. People have moved on. Yeah, that's a big problem because I've run into it. You know, like it's a, it's a common issue, whether you're an artist or a business person, like you spend so much time. And with a lot of the tools today, you can try to approach the so-called perfection. But I've been always a, a big uh, purveyor of, the, like I said, the happy accident or like in music, like I like to use multi-tracks rather than DAWs because mm -hmm. I'll go and learn, you know, I use a lot of analog stuff, but I felt like, like if I put it through the DAW, I'm going to go and try to change the bars rather than 
you know, get on my bass guitar. I'm going to play that bass line into a multi-track and it is what it is. And, you know, and I'll, I'll play, play the drums, play the keyboard. If you do that, yeah, it might be imperfect. It might be micro timing, micro tonal. You maybe you hit a different chord, but those, like you said, a lot of times it's the accident that drives that creative process. That there's the misstep or the so-called bad note, but it's really not a bad note. Mm-hmm. It's like the idea of the bad note. You know, there's a lot of people who say, you know, Herbie Hancock, Miles Davis, tons of artists will say, you know, there's no such thing really as the bad note. It's an opportunity mm-hmm. to to take that somewhere else. And then like, wow, the light goes off. It's like, I can actually go this way or that way or the other way or any way I want. <laughs> no, you're right. So it's, it's, it's really interesting um, in terms of like how you can take that creative spark and, and, and bring it into entrepreneurship. And people might not see the linkage between being like an artist and being an entrepreneur. They think they're two different things. What's well, the artists are like starving artists. They don't know anything about business. So maybe you can kind of talk about that kind of story, like the, the synergy or the how you were able to connect. I'd love to. There's there's a great connection between being an artist, being creative, and following what you believe in. You can call it being an entrepreneur, being a business person. The thing I think is so important is that in business today, and I think it's been like this for a long time, a lot of us feel like, okay, well, it's business. It's not really creative. It's just make a dollar, just make a buck. And that's not what business is for me. So what I do is I look at every client that we we work with and we do what we call an immersion. We immerse ourselves into what they do. And we could go, if they're a a manufacturing facility, we could go into their plant or factory. We try to learn what they're doing. And here's what's interesting. We don't try to create what their brand is. We try to discover what their brand is. We try to discover what they're doing that's unique. Because here's another thing. When you're very um, enthusiastic and filled with passion, you're also very willing to change things and stop doing this or whatever. And so many times, one of the most important things we bring to our clients is we say, hey, you know what? You do this, this, and that really well. And they go, yeah, yeah, we don't care. And we go, no, hold on, don't change that. That's why you are in the position you're in. That's why your customers love you. They love that. And many, many times the customer will say, are you kidding me? It's nothing. And we go, no, it's very important. It's the most important reason why your customers are loyal to you. So we look for those things. That's, mm-hmm. it's very important to find where that magic is with our clients because many times they have gotten, they've gotten caught up into this commodity mindset where mm-hmm. they have to compete with everybody worldwide. And what does that mean? lower your price, cut corners, Mm -hmm. change things, Yeah, change things. (laughs) That's the kind of story of the seventies. If you look at the Detroit, their cars in the sixties and the fifties, like, wow, these things are really amazing. And then you start getting into the seventies and they start like skimping and not having the style and it's kind of boring. And it it seems like the bean counters are starting to uh, determine the design. 
right? Because they're not allowing you to do what they used to do, which is what the customer liked. That they, they liked what they were doing before. But then they said, well, you know, we got to make more profit. We we got to we got to get on these trends. And then if you get let people like destroy your brand because they don't understand your brand and they're trying to make you like, you know, uh, service the market, service the shareholders and in in yeah, it's fine. You 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 got to make a profit. But if you make a profit to the detriment of your brand identity, then you're probably going to lose it. <laughs> That's really well said. Uh, we get to work with private equity companies, uh, some great ones, and they'll buy a large corporation. And what they say is, it's a great uh, slogan, they say, we buy a great company on a bad day. So they'll buy a company that has a lot of you know, possibilities to it, a lot of potential, but they'll get it while that company's kind of in trouble. They'll bail them out, they'll mm -hmm. own it. The biggest challenge, for the PE company is to not eliminate right, right. the unique <laughs> differentiators that made that company great because these private equity companies, and I love them. I work with them. I love them. Some of my best friends are major people at them, but they're, they're great behind the curtain. They're looking at how do you uh, simplify an operation? How do you reduce waste? Okay. That's great. It's all great until you start to infringe on those very, very few unique things that people love about your brand. And when you start to take those away and you start to smooth out some of those rough edges, sharp edges, all of a sudden you've got a commodity. You have something that's no different than anyone else and the PE company will then look at themselves and go, why do we buy this thing? It's a dog. Well, if that happens, it's because you created this dog and it's not what they wanted, but it's easy to do that because we have to understand. And I think this is important and it's important in business and everything, including music differentiation, which is what I focus my life on is not synonymous with superiority. You mentioned a Moog. Okay, everybody, that's a synthesizer. Well, there are other synthesizers. I had an ARP Odyssey way back when. I know they still have them. Okay, you can get into a fight with somebody who owns a Moog if you own an ARP and you can get into a, a, a good oh, yeah. intention fight big, over which one's better. <laughs> right, and it's the same thing as if you own a Macintosh, if you own a Mac computer versus a PC. You can get into a fight, but the reality is they are different. They have uniqueness. They have certain aspects that appeal to certain groups. Everybody, that is what you want with your brand. You want to have one, two, or three of those. It does not mean that you are superior. It does yeah. mean you are unique. You are doing it a different way for a particular reason. And guess what? There is an audience that is attracted to that. And you have to hold that sacred. You've got to hold on to that thing like it's dear life. You cannot let go of those one, two, three, or four unique differentiators that you have. Yeah. I think what happens is people don't realize they think why everything's the same and they don't understand. Like it's not that it's superior, like you said, but it's the color. It's like the reason why mm -hmm. if you're, you know, a musician, you pick different types of guitars 
exactly the tones that they have. I mean, I I love the ARP twenty six hundred. I love the twenty five hundred. There's a Quadra. There's a lot of cool ARPs. They have different colors versus like a Mini Moog or a Model fifty five. They you know the CP three mixer or whatever the low pass filter. They there's certain things that those instruments, even though they're all analog sense, they have their own character. And right. when you're trying to have a certain color or tone, it's the same reason why you use a Rickenbacker versus like a Les Paul. There's something right. you're looking for. You're looking for that tone. It's a guitar, but it has a different tone. So if somebody's just looking at high level, it's all good. It's just a guitar. It doesn't matter. It's like, well, the musician's going to know that there is a difference <laughs> in the tone. No. It's like, like you go to a, a brand and you buy an ice cream company and everybody bought that ice cream because it was like, had a certain taste. And then somebody decides I'm going to mass produce it and, and change it and say, so right. still have the same label. And they're going to cut the cost. But then when the customer gets it, it's like, but this don't taste like what I like. This is not why I bought this brand. Now it tastes like something that I, I wasn't really into. And it's like, what you just because it has the name doesn't mean it's the same thing. It's like you can't you can't wreck that differentiation. You know, if you do, then you lose it. You're right. And I think here's the challenge that's really, really powerful. Let's say you have a a brand, you have a company that you're running, or it could be a, a rock band or whatever, but it's a brand, it's a company, let's say, and it has some uniqueness and you name those unique attributes and what you do. And we, we, we really work with our clients to do this 100% of the time before you promote it to the world, you celebrate it internally with your team so they actually know why we do what we do mm -hmm. that helps because today we all know it's hard to retain employees turnover mm -hmm. is very high uh company loyalty from employees can be very low well but they're right if, if they they're right to have no loyalty unless there's a reason to have loyalty uh, a good a you good example a good, you're right you've got to be i i walked through an ambulance factory one of our clients owns ambulances and manufactures them and they're they're great and walking through the plant i met with a young man and i said hey what do you do and he goes i plug in wire harnesses and it was dead silence and i thought okay i go what else he goes um i'll tighten a bolt from time to time. And I said, okay. And then he added, but I'm going to leave here for 25 cents an hour. I'm going to go down the road. There's a marshmallow factory and I can start working over there and I'll make a few more bucks a week. I said, okay. I said, let's, let's think about this. Each ambulance that your company builds and you have like a, a dozen of them going down the line right now will last about 10 years. And he said, yeah, they'll last 10 years or so. Yeah, maybe longer, but 10, yeah. I said, in that period of time, over 100,000 people will be in that ambulance, whether it's the driver, the uh, EMT techs, uh, patient, or patient's families. And he said, uh, yeah, okay, 100,000. I said, and every year there are 4,000 accidents that ambulances are in as they're going through intersections. And he goes, oh, yeah. I said, okay, you're saving or protecting the lives 
of about 100,000 people, which with each one of these that your company builds. And he said, well, I never thought I was in the life-saving business. Yeah. They, <laughs> wow. They never really got that. Uh, you would have thought that an ambulance company would have had that as a mo motto, as, as, a, as their kind of company mantra. So to, to make people want to stay by it, maybe people are forgetting, like you're saying, they're not, they're not thinking that the person's anything other than a number on the assembly line, like a widget coming off the assembly line. If you, if you're not invested and you don't really think out like with the big picture of like, where's your product going? Who's using it? Is it important? Am I important? If you don't think you're really important, then you probably could just leave, you know, because it's like, well, I'm just replaceable. I'm not that critical. And, and what you said is exactly the point for your audience. It's not that the company is evil and they're trying to destroy these poor people. Not at all. The company leaders are too close to what they're doing. They, they see it every day. They don't pay attention to it anymore. When they started the company, they had that passion and they said, we've got to save lives and we're doing this and we're adding this in here so that this will be safer. Okay, they're still doing that in many cases, but they've become uh, comfortably numb, let's say. They've, yeah. become, they've yeah, come, become too numb to it. And what we have to do at my company, I help, again, remember, inspire. I help inspire them to inspire their people by saying, wait a minute, here's why we do these extra steps to make this safe. Here's why we will not let this pass inspection unless it does this, this, and that. And instead of it being a real pain for that poor employee, they're going, hey, I love it. I love yeah. it. So we need to feel that. We need to have a strong understanding of the fact that we have a significance, that what we're doing actually matters, and the company we we represent, we work for, we sell, we service, whatever our job is, that company has some real value. Yeah. You could, you have to become an evangelist again for your, for your like original story, which I think some of the companies have forgotten what their story is and they haven't really been out there and they've been so, you know, turned into wall street and the accountants and the, all those people are in the, you know, everybody, in the boardrooms making decisions it's too much of a narrow lane and it kind of goes back to this idea like you know sometimes you need to cross lanes sometimes you need mm -hmm. to kind of open your eyes and then figure out like what are your workers doing like can you go take a guided tour of your company mm. and check all the roles and see what people do and understand what they do and then and start to you know, do the assessment that you're making. Maybe you have to be a consultant to figure that out because the people are too close to it. So you come in and you do help people start to see. It's like people say, I had somebody on the podcast one time say, they say they went to decide they were going to buy a car. As soon as they decide to buy that car, then on the road, they suddenly see that car. Right. So they, but they, they saw that car, that car was there yesterday, but you didn't see it. It's only that you got an interest in it now that you see it. So I think a lot of times that happens in com companies. People, you know, they don't they don't understand the roles of the people. They they don't pay attention to it. You know, something goes wrong, <laughs> then they want to talk to the person. Then say, well, if you only talk to them when the something's going wrong, then you know they're probably going to walk out the door. <laughs> well, one thing to keep in mind, like you said, people 
the people who are making that product have to understand why they're doing it. And you mentioned a car just as a great example. People do not distinguish the difference between the brand and the experience that they got when they went into the store or the dealer. So for instance, somebody wants to go buy a certain type of car, they go to the dealership and let's say it's a terrible experience. The dealer treats the person terribly and they walk off and they go, okay, that was horrible. What do they say? Well, all too often, everybody, they say, I'll never buy that car. I'll that never say a good thing about that brand. And the people who built that car back in whatever factory or plant, they have nothing to do yeah. with that person who gave a bad experience. But you know what they do have responsibility for? If they are not making sure that the person who represents them way far away, hundreds of miles away, maybe thousands of miles away at a dealership. If that person at that dealership thinks, Hey, I'm just selling stuff. I'm pushing it out the door. Who cares? Then that brand has lost customers, sales, market share, and people they've lost it all. Yeah. It's like the same thing with the CRMs. Like if somebody has an experience with a customer relationship manager and the person doesn't treat them right, you know, and they, they can't get their problem solved. Then the person starts to down, down the brand. Cause every time I go to this brand, I get sent to five different people. I never get the answer. I never get it resolved. And they say, well, I'm going to, I'm, I'm done. I'm, I'm, I'm out. And it's like, it's very important to make sure that your interaction points, like you're saying, whether it's the CRM, it's the salesperson, it's, it's the manager, it's the, the, the anybody that represents that company in different roles is like invested in like the passion, the telling the story, like but doing the job and I'm just not moving the widget. I really believe in it, right? I really, the reason I'm at this dealer, cause it's like, you think about you know, somebody, oh, I got, I'm into it cause I love 442s or I love Mustangs or I love this. Right. Or I love they're, they're passionate about it. Like if you go for a higher end brand, then the person probably gonna be really telling that story, trying to sell a Ferrari, you know, they're gonna be like very passionate about that Ferrari. You got to tell you everything about it, Lamborghini, the kind of high-end brand. We're like, well, you don't have to be a high-end brand to be kind of an evangelist. You know, like somebody on that is probably an evangelist for what they're doing. It's passion. It's handcrafted. You know, they're passionate about what they do. They probably respond to their customers. They get, a, you know, if they're a good, good vendor, then they get repeat customers because people have this really glowing experience that, you know, you bought something custom. Now, I've bought in custom gear, become an electronic musician, and I buy for a lot of small, unique brands. And the difference is like when they actually call you or send mm. you a note or send you a card and they handwrite it or they hand like sign that 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 piece of equipment is actually signed by somebody on the line and said like, and I got a card from like a microphone company and the person that built it signed this card saying they were the person they had their name. And I said, well, that's really cool. You know, I, I just felt more invested because I actually connected to a person. Well, and what's really important about that is there it's that human connection where that person evidently felt that what she or he did was significant, important, 
and wanted to let you know that they crafted that microphone and they really hope you're happy with it. That that can keep a customer happy for decades. Yeah, I mean, it makes you want like why people will pay more money. Like people, not, it's not always about the lowest price. Sometimes people are willing. Because my daughter was talking to like um, she's a not in a nonprofit thing. And they were doing like tickets for these nonprofit events. And they have these tickets for people who are like founders or people who want to support the brand or mm -hmm. support the cause. And they'll actually kind of pitch it like, well, if you pay more, you can help these people. You can help more people. So the higher price you pay for the ticket actually supports more people, helps us do more. And so you can get people to actually give more. If you explain yourself, if you connect them to understanding like, oh, you're going to help this individual, you're going to get this person to go. It's about like the communication of, of like, what are you, what's your goal? What are you trying to do? Well, people have to believe and they have to think that their product is really worth, you know, screaming at the top of the mountain for because we're making a difference. And what you described there with the nonprofit is really smart because if they don't believe, then why should you believe? Um, I was introduced, it's, uh, it's just the first few pages of my book. The title of the uh, chapter is, would you buy your own product? Okay, that's the title of the first chapter. Would you buy your own product? And what happened was, one of my favorite clients had just been brought in to run a company that was over a hundred years old. And he said, Hey, can you get on the phone with my leadership? I kind of want them to meet you and maybe you can help me. And I thought, well, sure. I get on and they're really good people. But the head of sales said, yeah, you know, our product's okay, but you know, we're no better than anyone else. And we're not delivering on time. The manufacturing VP said, you know, our, uh, our product is okay, but we have a lot of quality problems, lots of quality problems. The engineer said, you know, we used to be cutting edge, but we're way behind the times. And I said, guys, listening to all this, it seems to me not one of you would buy your own product. And there was a lot of silence and the, and the leader, tremendous leader, he said, you know, that's a pretty compelling question. And we have to look at that do we talk about what we do or what we represent or our company, our brand, whatever, in a way that's disparaging, implying that we wouldn't even buy it? Mm -hmm. You know, are we sitting around commiserating about what we offer and what we do and having blinders on looking at the problems without saying, yeah, we've got some problems. We're not perfect, but we do deliver. We do care. So that's something that I think is so important. And the bigger the company, the easier it is to get lost in that maze of negativity. Yeah, it's like the imposter syndrome, like you're not good enough. Like mm -hmm. kind of like that at a, at a, you know, as a sociology major, it's kind of the group think, group level is kind of the microcosm is infected the macrocosm. So now that same kind of imposter syndrome is now is like a corporate culture. Like, yeah, we're not that great. And multiple heads in that board were like all saying the same thing. Mm -hmm. So it's like it's not wasn't it wasn't an individual, it was like a group think with a group belief, which you know might not be true, but maybe they've they've kind of lost they've lost kind of the guidance. They've lost their 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 shine.
and now they're they're not they're kind of stuck in the doldrums. How do you break out of that? Like, well, oh, you know, that's the way it is. It's like, well, yeah, if you're in that, you're you're not going to get out of it because then you're not going to push, you know, to to find where are you doing something that's brilliant. Where are you doing something that yeah, we do a little bit, little boost here, and we could make this back to where we were. But if you think, ah, it's not even worth doing it, we're not going to do it. (laughs) No, you're right. And I think that what's really important, and we cover this in the book, is that, yes, we've we've discussed that differentiation is critical. Your experience that you offer is critical. The people who are part of what you offer are key to ensuring that you're going to continue offering either new innovations or great service or a, a wonderful experience. That's what we have to do. And I like to look at it as we're awakening or reawakening the leaders of businesses to make them feel more alive, you know, to make them feel like, God, oh, you know, what we're doing actually is, you know, pretty darn good. We're actually helping people. We're actually doing something that's of value. And it's not just profit and loss or return on investment. It's something even more than that. It's, it's really illustrating to the people that are involved with what you produce that you care and that you are dedicated to making a difference in their lives and the lives of all involved with your product and brand. So you're kind of like the life coach for the board of directors. <laughs> yeah. I'm kind of the uh, CEO whisperer sometimes because the CEOs can be kind of scary to people and their, their employees will go, Oh boy, I'll tell you old so-and-so he's tough. Oh boy, she's really rough. And it's they're they're, I look at them as humans. They're not these monsters. They're not scary to me. They, they have unbelievable pressure coming down on them to perform, to meet the target goal of this amount of profit or market share, whatever it is. It's really hard to do that by yourself. And it's hard to push that chain up a hill. So I try to help them and I try to have them guy or uh, I try to have them focus their energies on the very few areas, the important areas that they need to really, you know, capitalize on. I'm just wondering, is the trend, like like a lot of times people think about corporate America and they think, well, like, well, what are these guys doing? Well, well they cut, they lay off, they cut the quality, they, they change the brand and I don't like it. So there's kind of like a, a bad connotation where like, where do you have it where you maybe you can give a good uh, some good examples of people not just cutting but people like reinvesting people connecting and wanting to hear what the what the people on the floor could offer rather than saying you know, well, anyway, let's cut, cut them out and not have them be involved in the process i think it's very easy with the way the media portrays business people and leaders and rich CEOs as these evil and incompetent people. Okay. Which is, it's kind of like Dr. Evil from Austin Powers. <laughs> you know, it's evil and incompetent. That is a tough combination. I'll tell Dr. you, that's no. a tough one. Dr. No. Yeah. <laughs> and, and what I look at as I'll tell everybody in the audience, 
25 years ago when I would say, look, we want to help you determine your differentiation and then first celebrate it to inspire your people internally, I was laughed out of some boardrooms and I was rejected by probably most of the rest in a nicer way because they said, look, we're paying people five bucks an hour. Who cares? They need to keep their head down and perform. I am sharing with you from the bottom of my heart, that's not the way it is today. Nine out of 10 times when I share the same message, you've got to differentiate yourself, show where you're significant and different and celebrate it first with the people who are behind your product and brand, your employees, as an example. The CEOs have an emotional response that is tearing up in their eyes because that's more important to them than ever. They want their people to be engaged. They want their people to feel proud. They want their people to perform well. So mm -hmm. today, more than I've ever seen in 40 years, the CEO understands it. It's just she or he is under so much pr pressure that's unreasonable that sometimes it's it's very difficult for them to see a way out yeah this seems like a lot of times you're wondering how much investment in the employee because I, I you know i've been in business a while but what i've seen is like sometimes you know they'll listen to the consultant outside consultant comes in but yeah. are they listening to the employees are they listening to their own software engineers and architects or do they bring an outside person in and listen to them and not actually celebrate who who has actually been making the product, right? So the, a lot of times the people on the floor feel like, well, I'm not being valued. There's this outside influence coming in and they don't feel like they're listened to. And so then there's a disconnect in like how much effort is being made to make there be two-way communication to have understanding and, and that can actually help the product if there is a good communication coming from the floor. That's a great point. And I believe that's happening. I think that's always happened. It's difficult to listen to a chorus of comments and then be able to pick through them and go, you know what, this, this is really good. And, you know, and other times go, no, no, no. So I agree with you. I think it is tough. Um, that's why also a lot of times third party uh, companies will come in and they, they really don't do a service for the clients because they'll, they make it easy for themselves. They'll give you a, a survey on a scale of one to four. What do you do, think of this? What do you think of that? And that helps. But what I do with our company is I ask the open-ended questions in those surveys. So if a client of ours has 16,300 employees, we will send out surveys with a few numbers, you know, a few, um, uh, you know, one to four uh, questions, but we have open-ended questions because we're looking for that unique phrase, that unique word, that message that starts to resonate. And that's what we look for. That's that magic. We look for it and we will find it. I'll tell you, we find it. We look for it. It's in there somewhere and we dig through it. We don't create it, but we are we're we're focused that's, on discovering that's really interesting because i remember like when i went to 
when I went to Bowdoin College and um, the whole idea of that is like the blue book. Mm-hmm. When you took the exam, you didn't just have multiple choice. You had to show that you understood the course. And right. so these o- the open-ended question is what I'm kind of re- leading yeah. to is if you just have multiple choices, like people would kind of get disinterested. You don't know if they're really answering right. But if you allow that open-ended, somebody can actually put in their own words, you're going to get an opinion. You're going to get an idea where if you don't allow that idea to come through, then you've only, you've limited the responses. So it's, it's right. just, I think that's really interesting that you have that, you know, like a, a possibility that you won't just get a canned response that you get right. something that's going to bump You're right. I just, I just got a survey yesterday from, uh, an organization I'm involved in and they ask questions and I knew what they were trying to do. They were trying to make it very easy for themselves to get answers. They were not trying to get into any rich information. And they basically, it was as simple as, Oh, do you really, you know, which statement is true? I really love where this organization's going, or I'm very upset with where this organization's going. And I thought, Oh, you guys, come on. You're putting me in a position that's ridiculous. You don't want my information. You want to just get me away and and out of your system so that you can just say, hey, we, we ask a lot of people. What you said's right. If we truly want to learn, we have to listen and we have to give our people the chance to express themselves, not in our words, but in their words. Yeah, because I mean, one of the things being in political science in uh you know in any of the social you know you learn how to take surveys you learned how to do statistics and you learn like if i craft you know i was taught how to craft a survey yeah and i can craft that survey to give me what i want right so, like if i cra- i could craft craft all those questions to give me exactly the kind of answers i want right. or i could be more honest and say well i'm going to go look for some things i don't want may right. want to see what's going to happen, be a real researcher and actually see what's really out there versus I want to have a specific response because I'm looking to be able to push a certain number that I can go say, oh, look, I proved this point because I'm trying to prove my point. <laughs> right. Vulnerability. That's what it's all about. If you want to succeed, you have to be vulnerable. You have to say, look, I hate some of these comments that I'm getting. Oh my gosh, I hate them. But I can learn from it. And you know what? We'll we'll be better for it, but boy, do I hate seeing some of these comments. If you're willing to be that vulnerable, you're going to be successful. Yeah, I think the vulnerability, you know, has always been a core theme. What I've talked about is like, because it, 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 you, feel, you feel real, you feel honest. You don't feel like you've just been uh, kind of overly scripted. Like it wouldn't be the reason why I do a live podcast because I don't want to go and get all the ums out of it. I don't right. want to go and credit, you know, edit it down, put fancy music, put all these effects and do all these things. It's like, no, I want to have a real conversation with an individual to get to their point, what right. what they have to offer. Cause it's like a masterclass. You're, you're given a masterclass on how, what you do. So I'll let you say it. <laughs> You're right. That's exactly, I, I couldn't put it any better. I think that's right on target. So one of the things I like to ask people for, before we let them go, cause we always end up being, you know, hitting the hour mark before we ever uh, expect it is like, are there three things about yourself that um, 
people would find like uh, int very interesting they wouldn't uh, initially perceive that you can maybe tell the audience? Um, well, one thing I did talk about is my background in music. So I've written hundreds of songs. I've written rock operas. I have a band called Mark, M-A-R-K, Urgent, which is on Spotify and a million other platforms. So there's a lot of songs out there. So that's number one. Number two, I've written a dozen parable books, not terrible with a T, but with parable <laughs> with a P, um, that are on business that uh, were very expressive. Number three is when my children were growing up, and this really helped me with my leadership style, I coached them in baseball and basketball. And I was more of a cheerleader than a, you know, a brilliant strategist out there, but it helped guide the way I work with people and how I could see in those children, you know, this one had this talent, this one had that. We nicknamed each one of the children so that they all had their own identity and was positive nicknames, by the way, but they all had nicknames. And at the end of each uh, season, whether we won more games or lost more games, it had no bearing. We had a huge celebration and each child was brought up and we all talked all the kids on the team and the coaches talked about what that child did great. And to me, that inspired me to run a business and to also help clients identify what they do so well, basically differentiation. Yeah, differentiation. I like the way you uh, came, came to that with that kind of better, more positive reinforcement rather than negative reinforcement. But I think it's like everybody thinks they kind of have to lord over people, kind of do the negative thing and like say, oh, <clears throat> red mark everything. Right. Like like if you have the teacher that, that red marked you, you probably dread going to the class. Right. But if you have the teacher that inspired you so much that every day you went to the class, you were like you wanted to be in that seat. And when I was going to school, the teachers and professors that made me want to be in the class, I did better oh, yeah. than the teachers that wanted to show me how much better they were than me. And I was like, well, you're the professor. So I guess you, you of course, you're going to know more than me. <laughs> you're right. You know, you're right. I had, I had a teacher I really liked, but he told me, give up. You can't succeed. But then I had another teacher that said, you know what? You can, you can do anything you put your mind to. And then you have to choose. You got to choose who you listen to. Yeah. Is this, is this cool that when you have people to help, you know, you, you run into people and you have to learn how to deal with it. But, uh, you know, it's always really positive story when you hear that positive reinforcement that you're talking about in a differentiation instead of like looking at, oh, what do we, what do we got to cut? What do we got to drop? Instead of like, what am I good at? That's usually not where people start they want to you know they will find out like oh i'm terrible at this and i'm not good at that and like having having to find in that thing that you can celebrate like you were talking about with the employees before you know that you actually find that i think that's so positive and that's a different outlook that maybe people don't expect but it's it's good to hear that people businesses are are going in the trend that you're we've been talking about but i want to thank you again for being on the podcast and remind everyone that we got www.barrylabove.com uh, uh, that's fully clickable uh, when you, we were published and we were just on Facebook, YouTube, and Twitch. And we'll be on the, all the major platforms that you can listen to or watch a podcast by tomorrow. And uh, thank you for being a guest on the Fam Electric Ghost podcast. 
I'll tell you, I love your show. Thank you so much. Your passion and your creativity shines through the entire podcast. So thank you so much. Well, thank you very much. Have a good night. Have a good weekend. Hey, you bet. Take care.